Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantelle. I'm Tiso. And we're three sociology students and each podcast we talk about things that have annoyed us in the media and in our everyday lives. So this week, Chantal, you're going to kick us off. What are you going to talk about? Um, So it's kind of things that have annoyed me over the past few weeks and I guess in my life in general as a black mixed race woman. Um, I'm going to talk about the politics of black hair. So um, recently in the news media... Solange Knowles did an interview with um, the Evening Standard about the importance of her hair and identity as a black woman. In the publication of um, her interview, there was an image of Solange and they cut off part of her hair from the image. Um, And then secondly, more recently, Grazia magazine featured Lupita Nyong'o and they smoothed her hair in the edit and took out her afro. Um, it was tied in an afro. And um, I guess what, I, what it made me sort of reflect on was my life growing up in a town where I was one of the only um, women of colour and what that meant for my hair. Um, and what that meant for my hair is that I singed it almost every day with straighteners because I was so convinced that I needed to have straight hair and that straight hair was the be-all and end-all because that's what everyone around me had. I used to cry about how much I didn't like my curly hair. It used to really... And looking back on it now, I feel like I was sort of made to feel like ashamed of what my hair was like. Mm. And it's not even necessarily that people said to me, oh, you've got horrible frizzy hair. No one said that to me. Whenever people saw my hair natural, they were like, oh, your hair's lovely, Chantelle. But it didn't matter because because everything I saw, whether that be in my white town um, where I grew up or even in the media, no one had hair like mine that I looked up to. So I automatically thought that you needed to have straight hair. So I guess what happened in Grazia and what happened in the Evening Standard it just made me reflect on my journey to now having hair that I'm proud of, my curly blonde hair that I'm proud of. Um, what do you think changed? I don't know. I was thinking about this. Um, I stopped straightening my hair. So it actually became even worse. When I went to university... I was even more convinced that I needed to have straight hair because I went I went to Loughborough University and it's a very white university and I was I was very much a black woman in that space for good reasons and bad reasons I think I think I was sort of singled out in some spaces as the either the token black woman or the black woman that is too I was hypersexualized basically in quite a lot of spaces at university because of my blackness. I felt like I needed to have a straight weave. So then I, that's when I started doing weave when I was at university. I wanted long, straight European hair. And then something happened as I left university. I don't know if it's because... I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe because I stopped being able to afford to have a weave. <laughs> I remember giving my GHD straighteners to one of my good friends, Gemma, and saying to her, you have these. 
I don't need them anymore. I don't I don't need them anymore. And from there Is she white? Yeah, yeah, she's white. And everyone used to love my straighteners as well. You can't get them you can't get them that hot anymore because they're so bad for your hair. (laughs) You can't get them that you can't get straighteners that hot anymore. So everyone used to like using my straighteners. And I remember giving and I don't know, I think maybe subconsciously maybe there was more media around that made me feel proud of my hair it's, it's, I don't know you see the madness is right so as a black person I you go through the same thing it's not it's not a gender thing so in the black community there is even a thing about hair good hair and bad hair yeah so given how dark skinned I am I truly I had negro hair the worst yeah. type of hair so it was unmanageable I used to hate getting it combed it's all these products you to put in it I remember growing up there was a product called um, Stay Sofro so you yeah. used to spray it to make your hair... What is it? It's like a... It's, it's like a juice. <laughs> you squirt in it. And it used to make... Because it used to have, like... Obviously, my hair would be, like, knotty and have, like... So it'd be hard to comb with an afro comb. Yeah. And like, it used to be horrible. I hate getting my hair combed. Who would do it for you? My mum. My nan would probably be oh, the worst God. because she's the old West Indian woman. So she was, she was strong. Yeah. So, <laughs> so she could hold me in one place oh. with her hand and comb my hair. Oh, my God. Oh, to, I'm having flashbacks. Or, That's horrible. Or have to go to school. So things brush. like things like going to, going swimming. I to hate going swimming. Yeah. Because I have to go in the swimming pool and then have to comb my hair after. But having to explain to your white mates who were in and out of the change room in seconds, why are you taking so long? One, I'm doing my hair. Two, I'm creaming my skin. All yeah, I'm things, creaming my skin. Yeah, 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 yeah. They didn't understand because I wanted to fit in. But yeah. and it shows the lengths that we would go through. So if, I don't know if you ever read um, Malcolm X's uh, autobiography. So in the 40s and 30s there's this thing to straighten their hair they used to use uh, chemicals but not not in the uh, kind of not in the um, sense that we use them today uh, as relaxants they used to get like potatoes and ferment them and you used to put it on your head it used to burn your skull it's called a conch <sighs> but the lengths that black people will go to to fit in to be white or be acceptable white yeah. in the commas is you burn yourself you hurt yourself yeah 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 it's like self-mutilation but it's, it's something but people why people don't understand like the, f- the thing to fit in, to feel that you're mm. not the same or you're not pretty. Yeah. So I'd see my mates, and they all, ever, all my white mates, got, obviously they're white, so they've got straight hair. So they, they would cut their hair. And it was not until, I suppose, I reached secondary school, and I became, I became aware of the kind of street notion of black. So once I got, once I got the street notion of black, my hair became powerful. Yeah. Just like, so it becomes almost linked, I suppose, looking back now, it's like, the Afro became powerful when it became linked to the to the Black Panthers and mm. people who were seen as cool. You have yeah, urban yeah, credibility. Yeah. So my haircut had urban credibility. So I had lines in my hair, so I had urban credibility. I had dreads, so I had urban credibility. When did you shave your head? For the uh, time? So when I had like, I had got an apicia when I done my A levels. Oh my god! Wow. So when I was about eighteen, just some of my hair. What, just from stress? Yeah, from stress. Wow. So for me, like I said. I don't. I don't have a lot of things tied up into me. But for women, it's slightly different. There's a lot of society yeah. places a lot of issue with women and their hair. The thing is, I suppose, is that like white women get all the beauty industry standards, mm-hmm. which are pretty considerable. Mm-hmm. And then for black women, they're given the same standards, but there's obviously not even the hope that you can ever achieve it. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that like I don't. I read. I read a blog post by a black woman being like, "Oh fuck off, those white women who like don't shave their armpits," and then like go around being like, "Oh my god, look at my armpit hair!" I'm like, "You can't even see it." And I was kind of thinking like, I mean, I can relate to that. I'm mm-hmm. not saying I have black hair, mm-hmm. but like being told I have a hairy back or hairy arms yeah. or just generally like my dad used to rip it out of me. You know, as a woman, you're not supposed 
supposed to be hairy. <laughs> and like, yeah. yeah, everyone's talked about this, but obviously the darker your skin, the more you're associated yeah. with like hairiness yeah. and like that being kind of repulsive. <laughs> it is It is interesting how environments change you or don't change you. I mean, you grew up in London and mm. you obviously are, are talking about the politics of hair. For me, I think what I've been reflecting on is I thought that because of where I grew up, that's maybe why, or because of where I went to university, that's why I was ashamed of my hair. And then when I, as I was 21 and moved to London, that's when my hair sort of became my crown because I felt like I didn't, I didn't stand out as much. I don't know. I but I feel like but it's, it's not like Tisa grew up in London. Yeah. Like exactly. I know so other black women or mixed race women who have had similar experiences or growing up in Leeds. You know, the you know it's a more multicultural yeah, yeah, community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so it's, that sort of makes my point. Maybe it's something more than mm. environment. It's so I think yeah. it's something that runs like, so deep culturally. It's, it's just like it's structural. Like so, I was like I said to you guys earlier. I spoke to my mum about this issue. So my mum's 60, she was speaking to her uncle who's in his 80s, 90s now. So when they came up, he never he never was happy for his children or his uh, nieces to straighten their hair. But my mum said she straightened their hair, one, because on a superficial level, it's fashionable. On a deeper level, obviously, it says stuff about <clears throat> how they perceive themselves, how they saw themselves in society. But she said, <clears throat> in straightening her, it allowed her to work for, in her job that she is now, to work in the government, to work with other white people. Mm. Because she said, natural hair did not get you jobs. Mm. Straight hair got you jobs. So it's, it's, it serves, a, I suppose, the best person, if you're looking at it, kind of like, theoretically, is probably Franz Fanon. Mm. So he, he wrote a book called Black Skin, White Masks. This in the 50s, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So to trying to, for black people, black people to kind of feel they're part of or to move through society, a white society, you wear masks, you perform yourself, you perform in, you perform in certain ways. Mm. So for me, or for, for black women to be moved through society and feel equal or feel mm-hmm. beautiful, you have to straighten your hair. Yeah. But then to come back to the black community, there's a kind of, there's a problem in there because some say you're trying to be white yeah because your hair is not natural but then if you do wear your hair naturally you're seen as some black guys won't find you attractive because you're not modern. yeah there is that issue with there's that attraction issue yeah. as well which was definitely on the on the flip side of that yeah. i think a lot of white men were put off me because of my natural curly hair but then on the same side at the same time as a mixed race woman i'm i'm fetishized so then my curls actually do become something which is sexualizes me as well (coughs) which is just really annoying and problematic and you can't win what i think is changing or what i believe is changing but again we i don't know if we're in our london goldsmith's bubble here yeah but publications and media outlets such as like Gaudem magazine and Media Diversified, they're putting different images out there. And I, every time I see like some of the amazing articles they produce and some of the amazing images they produce, I'm like, if I had seen this as a young girl growing up, would that have helped me or not? I, I, like, would that? I don't know. But then you look at someone like Little Kim, all these people there, like hip hop culture. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of gone the opposite direction. Yeah. It's become superficial. It's become straightened hair, pink hair, yeah, blonde yeah, hair, yeah. wigs. And, like, yeah. almost cartoonish. You mean, yeah. like, oh, um... Like, if I Nicki see... Minaj. Like, Nicki Minaj. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I don't really know. Like, I see them, and I think to myself, like, from where we were to, to where we are now, and I think it's almost like we're taking steps backwards because we're... Yeah, but then again, I don't know. Like, I think there is something to be said to, like, being able to be, like, playful and creative... 
like there has to be a certain amount of freedom to even be able to try and do that but I think for example the kind of images of beauty that I'm seeing like for example Kim Kardashian Kim Kardashian oh yeah I saw on the side of the bus her her sister today is one of them called Courtney I was going to say and so I'm looking at their face so they're they're like the kind of classic kind of um, uh, fetishized idea of what white society would like so kind of a kind of hybrid between white and black features yeah. put into one and I look looking at, at her face on the side of the bus it's obviously been airbrushed out so it's almost yeah. symmetrical it's definitely brown yeah. but European features yes definitely yeah, yeah. this is exactly good what point, I was saying point, earlier like we and my little sister always talk about this how we're brown enough to be exotic mm-hmm. or light enough to be white, to be white. and, this, and but, people love that people go crazy this saying, but this is this has been like if you look at kind of like in kind of like um like pornography from the like 18th and 19th centuries, especially around slavery. Mm. The, 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 what they're looking for is a Beyonce or a Kim Kardashian. Well, it's not, it's no accident. Do you remember Kim Kardashian's Break the Internet thing mm. and how it was linked to like the Hot Top Venus, yeah. who was yeah. a woman who was, she was taken from South, South Africa, Africa. Yeah. and like exhibited around Europe because mm. she had, um, you know, a big bum and like, a, like, large labia or something yeah Yeah. and so she was exhibited like look at like you know the Mm. sort of these sexualized savages like Mm. she was literally a museum exhibit and then when she died she was a museum exhibit as well you you go to you go to somewhere i think in the netherlands they've got they've made a cast of her bum and her her, her vagina so so you can still go and you can still look at her Oh my god! It's just fine. So you know, she was echoing that, and that's lit. Like that's kind of the embodiment of black bodies being consumed yeah. for a white audience. Yeah, as like an exotic object. But like I said, but this this idea of hair is so problematic, and it's so psychological. Like I said, it, it impacts black people on such a like kind of like a disproportionate level. Like within, yeah. like I said, within our own community, it's a problem. Yeah. Like mm. there's so many things we talk about related to hair. So how much women spend spend on like on weaves and stuff like or if you if you talk to a black girl never touch her hair never touch her hair or if you're having sex with a black girl never touch her hair mm-hmm. it, it's it's like an obsession with us now and it, it this is one of the kind of l- l- hangovers from slavery like it's affected our minds the reason people say don't touch my hair is because like black hair is seen as up for grabs as in like I know lots of people who say, you know, going clubbing as a black woman is impossible because people will it's, grab your hair all the time. It's so annoying how much people grab my hair. Like, and I just really want to put it out there now. Yes, I do mind you touching my hair. All these, I've had 20, like, yeah. from, I can even remember as like a toddler people like playing with my hair. Honestly. People used so to do this to me at school. I know it's not the same because no. I'm not black, but having curly hair, people seem to think that it's okay for them to just like put their hands in your hair and I wonder if that's related like yeah, yeah it is but like, I think you're right I think it is something deeply psychological the amount of times that I would spend in my room stressed about my hair mm. and it's like how do we how do we make us proud of our hair the thing is, is that, I, 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 I don't, I don't, like, I don't <laughs> think the issue I don't think black people are proud but there is an, certainly an issue around how we feel about hair and how we feel we need to sometimes sometimes we use our hair as a as politics so yeah. as Andrew Davis to make a point to say look I'm proud of my difference yeah but then sometimes our hair when we're younger we just, we just want to fit in yeah okay I, yeah that's right that's what's happened to me so I wanted to fit in mm. as a young 
but, girl. But now it's my crown and my my curly afro is my politics. But you see, I think you're thing, right. Yeah. I think when you're younger, you lack the vocabulary or yeah. you lack experience to kind of articulate what you're trying to say to someone. So when my pals you say to me, "Take and I t- does your hair hold water like a sponge?" I'm eight. So what am I going to say? I'm like, no. So yeah. if it's so them for them, I can't be angry at them. Looking back in hindsight, it's a journey of discovery for them as yeah. well, trying yeah. to understand difference. But, but also, it makes it harder if you're the only one. Like I guess for you at school too. So, but yeah, as a at primary school, you're only black kids. Well, there's like three. There's three of us, but most of them, the other ones are mixed race. But what I'm trying to say is like, I I get that when younger, but what I what's upsetting me is it's the images that you see. The images affect how you feel. And so when I used to go to, even something stupid, I went to Catholic primary school and I'd see Jesus. Jesus got straight hair. Yeah. Like, he's God. God has yeah. straight yeah, hair. Yeah, but that's not stupid. That is so, yeah. that's deliberate. That's, that's, so, that's so deliberate. So you see that in your head and you're thinking, fuck, God has straight hair. I even went, to, yeah. I, I took to the next level. So as a kid, you're trying to work through logically. So I said to my nan, so if God's got straight hair, does he do, what colour is his poos? Is his poo white? What? Because he's white. I think he needs, so is he, does he do white poos? Because I'm black, I do brown poos. Like, and my nan, well, she just went, she just looked at me like I was mental. But that's a logic you go That's with. such a logical question. Yeah, it's logical. <laughs> you, sorry, logi- sorry, sorry. you logically work through it. So you think yeah. if God's white and everything he does is white. Oh my God, I love kids. So, I know. <laughs> that makes me really want a child. <laughs> So that's that's what that's the logic I went through. I said to my mum, so if everything I see is white and white is good, like so God do white poos, I do black poos. And she said, No. Well she doesn't know. <laughs> I don't think she even gave me an answer to be fair. Yeah. The elephant in the room here is whiteness though, isn't yeah. it? That's, that's why saying. we're even having this debate. It's because whiteness. whiteness. But no one speaks is... about that whiteness. No one, everyone speaks about me as in my yeah. speaking about my hair is like a problem. It's, it's, it's you've got the problem, not me. Yeah. I'm this is I'm just am who I am. But I think it's one of those things that it makes me think of, you know, when people often draw an equivalence between sexism and racism and people say things like, why is it okay to be openly sexist? Like, it's not okay to be openly racist. But when you think about things like hair, no one's going to, or maybe some people do, but most of the time people don't have to say we don't like your hair because it's like too neat, like you have Negro hair or like, you know, you have Afro hair. People don't need to say that because it's so understood. Yeah. Like it is, that's what, like it is so ingrained that whiteness is good and that not whiteness becomes like, like becomes seen as a bad thing. This is is the thing, I think in, I don't know, like in all the things we're talking about roughly, there's, there's like a pattern. Mm. And the pattern needs to be established. Like people need to start talking about the structure, the mm. structure that up- upholds all this, that looks at deviance like in all of us. Yeah. Be it in our form of our agenda or in our form of our race, the structure of whiteness needs to be spoken about. Yeah. Truly, because it's when you, whenever you speak to white pe- white people about themselves, it, they, they pull back from it. No yeah. one wants to talk about it. And if they do want to talk about it, for example, like Richard Spencer, he he talks about it from from a position of hate. Yeah. So he, he's not really talking about it. He's just saying that I am the top regardless. Mm. So he's not really talking about it. Yeah. So I think there needs to be a debate about whiteness, the structure. Why, why Why are you like this? Why do you feel the need to be like this? Yeah. Because it's it's upsetting, bruv. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's, single, <laughs> it's upsetting. Yeah. Should we move on? Yeah. Saskia, what has annoyed you this week? Um, so this isn't just this week. This is pretty much my whole life. It's kind of this month. 
you might have seen the stuff in the media about um, David Lammy, who's the MP for Tottenham, uh, Labour MP, did a Freedom of Information quest request from Oxford and Cambridge um, asking for their stats on like admissions and stuff. I'm just going to read out the beginning of a report from The Guardian on the 19th of October. So they've written, nearly one in three Oxford colleges failed to admit a single black British A-level student in 2015, with the university accused of social apartheid over its admissions policies by the former education minister, David Lammy. The data shows that 10 out of 32 Oxford colleges did not award a place to a black British pupil with A-levels. The data shows that 10 out of 32 Oxford colleges did not award a place to a black British pupil with A-levels in 2015, the first time the university has released such figures since 2010. Oriel College only offered one place to a black British A-level student in six years. You know, that's a terrible set of statistics. And... A lot, and you know, if you go on the BBC and look up stuff about the story about Oxbridge, then you know you'll get um, Oxbridge is the word for Oxford and Cambridge together. If you look up stats about Oxbridge, you'll get stuff about how you know they discriminate against people who, for example, from like different geographical regions. It's overwhelmingly uh, from London, the southeast, that they get applications and that they accept people, um, whereas some parts of the country they don't accept anyone or barely anyone. And, you know, if you look at it based on class, based on free school meals, like anything like that, basically, Oxbridge does not let you in unless you are white enough and middle class if you're British. Um, people talk about this a lot and then the conversation always goes, you know, we need fair access. We need fair access to these institutions. They need to broaden their intake. They need to be more diverse and all this kind of stuff because, you know, we should be living in a meritocratic society. And this word meritocracy it comes up all the time and it comes up in the context of like you know we need a fairer society it's the kind of thing that politicians say all the time we need a fairer society we need to create a true meritocracy meritocracy is a lie it doesn't exist like anywhere that claims to be meritocratic okay firstly just to like break down what meritocracy is and whether or not it's a good thing so it was invented by the term was invented by this guy called michael young in the 50s and he wrote a satirical novel imagining the world as if it were a meritocracy And the idea is that basically people get uh, resources and wealth and status and stuff in society based on their merits. So if you work hard and you're clever, you get more. If you're lazy and you're stupid, you get less. How is that a good thing? Like, you're basically condemning people who are not as clever as they could be to poorer, like, you know, less... Uh, resourced lives that doesn't make any sense <laughs> to poor, yeah. you know to living in poverty basically based on how clever they are or how much they apply themselves this got taken up in the 70s as like you know this is what we should be striving towards and it's something that people talk about in kind of exclusive institutions the whole time to justify being exclusive but the whole point is there is no meritocracy there is no meritocracy. Like, if you look at A-levels and stuff, the top grades are always going to be got by private schools or grammar schools or whatever, like, places that are more selective because they don't just select based on, you know, intelligence. They select based on your cultural capital. So what kind of class background you have affects how well you can answer the questions, how well you can read at the age of 10, all that kind of stuff. And then if you look at things like women, like, women have more qualifications than men. They do better in qualifications than men. There are more women than men at universities in the UK. And yet women are not empowered. They don't have the top jobs. Like, it's pretty obvious that whatever barriers are there to women and black people and whatever, like, there's no point talking about fair access or meritocracy because 
It's not particularly desirable to have a meritocracy, and it doesn't exist anyway. So, I don't know. This is the kind of thing that really gets on my nerves. <laughs> you see, what's interesting is the real-world impact on that, right? So if you understand, as a young black male, you're yeah. brought up that you're told... If you're gonna if you're gonna get well, if you're gonna do well in this world, you need to do twice as well as your twice as well. So they'll push you hard at school. So I'll go to school and I'm doing all this stuff, but then your friends are telling you, listen, your older friend, your older pals are saying, Listen, T, don't do that, man. It's rigged. The system's rigged. Yeah. But I believe in meritocracy. You you're being brought up with this thing. Yeah. So you're trying to I'm trying to work hard. But your friend's saying to you, listen, don't bother. Don't bother. So you start applying for jobs. You start applying for jobs. And your friends are telling you, you're a mug. And you're thinking, well, I'm not doing a mug. I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. But then you, I can see, well, listen, they're right. Because I'm banging my head against the wall, not getting nowhere. But the, they're telling me, listen, you need to just do... do, And this is how young black boys kind of get put off because your confidence is getting knocked because this thing, meritocracy, that you've been you brought up to believe yeah. in the myth, you believe it so much that you're doing this, but you're not getting anywhere. So you, therefore, you start diverting your attention to illicit activities because that's where you're. <clears throat> it's a rational choice. Yeah. Because if you're not doing something, you're not getting there. It's irrational to keep doing that. So you rationally, you think, oh, boom, I'll do this, but you start doing crime because you think, well, this, I'm not making my way through this society. So you 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 dive into this subculture where you achieve the success that you can't achieve in the mainstream culture. Exactly. I think you're referring to Merton's strain theory there. Yeah. What does that mean? Strain <laughs> theory, it's where you are unable to achieve societal goals yeah. and find your own goals, basically. Find your yeah. own structure. Because so, society isn't set up for all of us, it's set up for a privileged yeah, few. Yeah, it's set up for the elite few. So yeah, it makes total sense that if you... You know, there is this huge thing, um, like my private school is all about you know like if you work hard you'll get where you want to get and yeah like obviously because you've already basically got that (laughs) like you know it won't work out for every single person in that school but basically even if you don't get into Oxbridge from there you're going to go to a Russell Group University which is you know that group of top uh, universities in the UK and after that you'll have all the contacts and all like the social connections which means that you'll probably get the job that you want in an area that you want that doesn't mean your life's going to be super easy but it means that you're going to get to those upper echelons of society because you're already there whereas yeah if you're starting off a black kid in east london in a council house the fact is you can work as hard as you like and like you know so you have got a degree and you've worked in banking and all that kind of stuff but I've got two degrees. You've got sorry, <laughs> going master, <laughs> doing your PhD. But I mean, like even getting to an undergraduate degree. But you see, this is the thing. So this is the myth of meritocracy. So I'm collecting qualifications. Yeah, yeah. I'm collecting them, and it's it's a nice thing to have, but it ultimately means nothing because I understand now that work is bigger than that. When you go there, it's about your connections, your networks, who you know. I think that I had that realization a bit too late. I'm not too late, but I I was an eight, where I when I realised the myth of meritocracy. I think I was about 21, and I had been brought up and in a school, gone to a school where it's like, yeah, meritocracy, meritocracy, and particularly in a state school, it's like mm. you can work really hard, you can do this. I did really well in my A levels. Um, worked hard at university. Did really well. Chantal got 100 percent in two of her A levels. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened? is I finished my undergraduate degree and I didn't do like get like, I didn't get like the very very top marks because I had to work 
as well as, at the same time as doing my undergraduate like lots of like lots of undergraduates mm. do I had to work quite a lot and do my degree so I remember I wrote most of my dissertation but working behind the bar and then I decided oh, I quite like academia I want to keep going in this I remember saying to my supervisor like I want to my dissertation supervisor I want to do a master's um what are the options for me and she was like well this these are places where you can go like you've got lot there's lots of opportunities for you and then when looking into it I found out that there's no money there's no student loan there wasn't at the time there is now actually there's no student loan for young people to do uh, postgraduate education so I was like so I said to my supervisor I was like so how am I gonna pay for my master's she was like I'm not sure, Chantelle. Can you have you got any par- have you got parents you can ask? I was like, well, she didn't okay, say so like this no, is funding no, you could she get. Said, she, she said there are opportunities, but yeah. have you got any family that can help you? I'm like, no, we ain't got any money. Like, don't be ridiculous. So I had to get out a ten grand loan to pay for my fees to do a masters at Birkbeck, so I could go to Evening University and in the day do a full time graduate job. Hey, to pay back the loan and live in London, and I then and then you just re- you get to that point and you're like wow like I'm good enough to do a masters but society doesn't want me to do a masters because I'm from a working class <laughs> lo- like single parent family like I don't have enough money exactly. to do well so that means I'm not going to do well so like the government going on about like oh fair access fair so, like what are they actually talking about like getting more kids on free school meals into Oxbridge first it's not going to happen. Because they're not going to be like, oh, we acknowledge the fact that you've had to struggle way more to stay in education than anyone who went to Eton. Like, that has actually been something, you know, to put that kind of work in is, like, unimaginable. Or, like, you know, if you're some people, you know, who are full-time carers for, like, a parent or something, they're never going to take that into account. They're never going to be like, you know what, we're going to give you lower A-level grades. We're going to give you different expectations in interviews. Because they're going to say, oh, but we don't want to teach those pupils. Like, the reason we have those interviews is so that we find pupils you want to teach. It's like, the reason you have those interviews is so you can restrict access as much as possible. And then you can tell the students, it's your fault that you Mm. didn't get in. Mm -hmm. It's your fault that you... You're not good enough. Yeah, you felt uncomfortable in this massive... You know, the way they do those interviews is you go along to Oxford or Cambridge like most people have never really been in somewhere like that before it's like these really fancy old buildings that can date back to like the 13th century you're sitting in an office where there's there's some academic you've never met an academic before with a huge wall of books behind them written by clever people it is terrifying whereas like you know if you've got I remember it sounds, like, it sounds like you had an interview. So yeah, yeah, I had an interview. I didn't pass. I was shitting myself. And also, I no. And this sounds like I'm bullshitting, but I didn't really want to go. I remember oh, talking to some. Like <laughs> I, I totally understand that. I was talking to this girl, like, so you know, you had like a day of interviews. I was chatting to someone at lunchtime, and I was asking where else this girl had applied, and she had said, "I was like, oh, and where's your first choice?" And she was like, "If your first choice isn't Cambridge, why are you here?" And I was like, "That is a really good point. I don't want to be here." <laughs> That's horrible. That is, a, that is a good point. <laughs> um, it is, yeah. But yeah, like the the fact is, their design, and I've met other people. Like, I went to York, which is also, you know, Russell Group University and all of that. And I met people who came from working class backgrounds, who had like straight A stars at A level, who went to these interviews and were just like, 
there was no way I was ever, ever gonna survive in that because yeah, like I'd never been in a building like that before. I'd never had anyone speak to me like that before. They're designed to keep people out. That's what they're for. It's like the gatekeeper to privilege. That is what Oxbridge is for. It's not about fair access. If you wanna talk about fair access, you get rid of Oxbridge. You get rid of the idea of like elite universities. God, I'm so on that. I'm so for that. <laughs> because what we're doing now, and this is why I find this debate slightly uncomfortable. We're like, we need to get more of our B-A-M-E kids into Oxbridge. B-A-M-E like, is black, Asian and minority ethnic. Yeah, I'm using their terminology. I don't like that term, but I'm using the government's terminology. We need to get more of these kids into Oxbridge. It's like, what? So they can deal with the emotional labour of racism every bloody day. Yeah. I, I find it... I know why we do need to have more visibility in elite institutions, but who carries the weight of mm. whiteness? It's the stu- it's those and students. also a lot of the time it's... the multiculturalism that you get at places like Oxbridge, like it will be or like LSE is a classic example. <laughs> yeah, LSE is the London School of Economics, and you know it's a big name university. It's got a really big international profile, and it's built and you know it's a very diverse student population because they basically just find elites from all over the world. They're like, can we have your money? Like, <laughs> that's what they do. They have money from like Gaddafi's son, like you know, like whoever. Yeah. Like think of a dictator. But you see, when I go, when I went to LSE, and the first thing that struck me, being a black working class boy there, the, the, what came to my mind was nineteenth century notion of hierarchy of race. Yeah. So white people are there, a lot of Chinese, a lot of Indians. So the Chinese were thought to have in in that kind of notion of racism be civilised, be very close to Europeans, mm-hmm. but because of, because they had Confucianism, they stagnated, so they were conservative, so that's why they never were successful as white people, as Europeans. So you find this in the works of Mill and other philosophers of the 19th century. Max Weber was the same. Mm-hmm. Indian, Kant. Kant was the same. Mm-hmm. Indians, again, have the possibility of civilization, but are kind of like the noble savage. They can be taught. And they have had great civilization, and you won't see many black people or Africans there because ultimately, to world history, you haven't contributed anything. So in LSE, when I was there, that's what I felt because that's what I saw. Yeah. I saw lots of white people, lots of Chinese people, lots of Asians, but hardly any black people. Mm. And this is this is that kind of notion. And if you watch that program on Channel Four, Angry mm. American and White with Gary Young, mm. this is what when Richard Spencer when he spoke about race in that way, he said. Af- what is, if you took if you remove Africans from world history, what they have what what have they what have they contributed? Nothing, and this is a classic ra- racial argument. But when you go to these institutions, you see this. This is what I was saying about racism: is no one needs to say it, mm-hmm. no one needs to openly say it, and it's the same with class as well. In that context, mm-hmm. like working class students in Oxbridge know that they're not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, when I started working in the city, Bob, I've gone to the gaff. I didn't really understand how things worked, how, how people had to speak to people. So when I've gone into the place, I'm, I don't know how, the Wangis were saying to me the word finance. I didn't know what a finance was. So I've, I've gone to my mum and said to my mum, boom, this geezer saying to me, finance. Isn't it finance? That's what he said. He was so posh, he would say the word finance as finance. Oh, right. And I was like, I didn't, even, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't understand. But then now, finance, now, now I've got older. I, that would confuse me. What but you see, it's, it's, about, it's about understanding your people, with yeah. the way you roll. So if we, were, if we come to my area, my, my place, I see them middle class people, those hipsters, they're out of water. They're out of water. You're in my world now. Mm. So you don't know how to navigate that. Mm. But I know how to navigate your world. Mm. But you see, when, you, when you come to my area and you're gentrifying Mary, the way you move, you're going to get robbed. I can tell you you're going to get robbed. <laughs> 
because you don't know how to. You don't have to. You're rolling with your phone. The way you're walking, you're walking like a victim. Because you don't know. How, you don't know how to roll in my area. But it's it's about navigating the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a working class black male, I've had to come. I've had to compromise myself. I've had to expose myself to your world. Yeah. So the myth of meritocracy it's made me. I've banged my head against that wall. Yeah. I've gone there. I've sat the tests. I've gone. To, I've applied to that. I've gone to the London Oratory and got knocked back. I went through all these trials. I remember I applied for a scholarship to go to Japan to do a masters. So I went through a whole barrage of high profile interviews. I went to the last round. So you've got the head of Japanese H and R, the head of someone else in Japan, and some head of European operations. And as a working class boy, you ne- I've never been exposed to anything like this. Mm-hmm. Something like you would see in The Apprentice. So they'll start talking about your family. Now, as as a working class boy, I'm thinking, what are you speaking about my mum for? Uh, I what were they asking? Just ask that- stuff about your background, your mum, your dad, and all this kind of stuff. But you, but I'm not aware of how to operate or how these things are. So it's about your, like you said, your cultural capital, yeah. what you're exposed to. So when I see people coming to the gym now, and I see these see these hipsters come to my place, you don't have the cultural capital to move around like that. Mm. But you yeah. want to. I've seen you. You want that. Yeah. But it's understandable that idea of meritocracy. But I was going to add like this idea of meritocracy has been it's it's becomes even stronger when you this idea of the entrepreneurial spirit that's yes. been pushed forward there. You can be a self-made man if you work hard enough. You can be a self-made. Yeah. Man. As a working-class person, as a black person, you can overcome all these hurdles and reach the top. And they'll always quote examples of Obama or Alan Sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone as who, if Obama didn't have any privilege. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you know, they'll quote these people, and if if you're uncritical. You'd think, yeah, you've got a point. You've got a point. Because there's always going to be some that make mm. it. But we're not talking about some anymore. We're talking about the few. So when I meet my pals and I'm trying to say, well, why do you keep doing music? I can see why they do music. Because it's the door they have access to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, a good, that, that's a really, I like that. That's a really good yeah. point. It's the door you, I, yeah. It's the door that's open But it's to. the same, you know, like with women and stuff. It's like, it's meant to make you feel bad about your failure. Mm. By being like the game's not rigged it's your problem academia is a classic one where there are hardly ever hardly any women in positions of power or black people but just think about women for a second Mm -hmm. and there are loads of really good reasons for that one of them being that like childcare shit like you don't get childcare in academia you don't have money for childcare in academia there's no no such thing as like childcare voucher whatever you know like it's long hours it's weekend work it's work all the time for not that much pay and like you know if you go on maternity leave then you could lose your job. Like, it's not legal, but they find ways of doing it. But if you have that kind of myth of meritocracy, it's like, well, your male colleagues were just better. They were just cleverer. They just had better books or, like, better papers or, you know, and that happens in every single field. Like, any field, even if it's dominated by women, will have men at the top of it. Like, that is not because men are inherently better than women. That is because the game is rigged. But you end up feeling like shit. And it's a way, yeah, it's a way of, like, personalising it. This is, like, part of the kind of neoliberal thing of, like, the market. It determines everything, like, everything that's good rises to the top, everything that's bad falls to the bottom. If you fall to the bottom, it is your fault because it's a meritocracy. If you just tried a bit harder or a bit cleverer, then you could have got to the top too. Well, this is the thing. And then this, that kind of, when you translate again, what I'm interested in, you translate that into real-world thinking. So when people, when I hear anecdotally people talk about homeless people, they say that's your fault, that's their fault. Mm. I hate that. And I say, well, I'm saying, well, hang on, you don't know what they've done or what they've gone through, yeah. or what 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 kind of uh, barriers they've had to overcome or that's def- defeated them. You don't know. But this idea of a meritocracy, this idea that everyone can do it regardless yeah. of, the, of the hurdles, 
it's so ingrained in people's heads that they will see their fellow human being in in the worst condition possible and talk negatively about them. Oh, Say, you, you deserve to be like that. Yeah. No yeah. one deserves to be pissed Absolutely. off. <laughs> no one deserves. No, that. or beaten up. Or beaten up. But this is this is Ash. how 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 kind of how powerful that myth is. Yeah. It, it it's it's so endemic it's so <clears throat> and also yeah and it's a way because government uses it all the time like this whole like hard-working families and you know people say it a lot but this whole like it's the idea of the deserving and mm-hmm. undeserving poor like mm-hmm. the reason these people are in poverty the reason they're on benefits you know it's nothing to do with structural issues or deindustrialization or anything like that it's because they are not marketing themselves they're not being an entrepreneur they're relying on the state instead of working hard like all those things and then, you know, you're personalising that failure. Mm-hmm. And that has consequences for people's lives. It's really <laughs> depressing. It's, it's depressing, I, isn't I, it? I, I need therapy. No. Therapy. Well, just, just one more thing on that. How do we prepare young people that are on the fringes? I don't know, because I was thinking of that and thinking, like, you know, my friend, who work, she works with kids in schools where more than 50% of them are on free school meals in like Hackney and Tower Hamlets and Camden and Harringay and she was saying like one of the things they try and deal with is that lots of kids from deprived backgrounds aren't used to applying themselves to things so they give up really quickly Mm. and I was like yeah I mean I guess it's true that you want to show kids that it is worth applying yourself (laughs) it's difficult because you also know they're going to get kicked back so much more than everyone else when I've gone to like schools in my area so schools in Bethany Green I've gone to speak to kids who are 13 and I've said to them listen I'm the same as you I'm from the same bits as you right so I grew up around here I understand what you what you do but I said you see these people here it's about being understood so I said, you see how me and you were talking? We could understand each other because we speak the same. But I said, you're going to go into an environment where people, you might not, these people are not from the same area as you. They're from a different place, different, different time, different age. So I said, work, what I've discovered, it's about more your soft skills. So it's, you've got to be able to communicate to me because if you can't be understood, they're not interested. So I said, so you have to be able to tone down, not, not change yourself, but to be understood. So speak a bit clearer. Don't use slang. Because one of the things I tell the kids is don't never use slang when you speak to the people because it, it automatically puts up a wall. Mm. So these people, they're, they're not ready to listen to what you're saying. So I said it's about taking that time to be, speak neutrally. I like that. I, I do like that advice. However, I would really like to say to young people, I'm going to tell you this stuff, but this isn't because there's anything wrong with you. This is because of who's in charge. What's wrong the with them? Is, right? The madness. Like, so you're they, saying don't use slang. I would say being extra is like part of who I am as right, like my extra like way I'm a little bit like out there sometimes. That's my that's my identity, that's my blackness, I think, as well. But the reason why I have to tone that down for some people is not because there's anything wrong with that, it's because they don't get it. But the, <laughs> the kids are aware of their structure. They're aware of there is barriers. So they'll tell me that all this stuff about they, they feel that that's why they won't apply. They're aware of this. On some, maybe on a superficial that they're aware but I said still apply because you can get into it. I said it took me ages it took yeah. me years right yeah but I said you, you should always apply because you can make it of course you can make it because your parents have spent a lot of time and like I said when you're from that background your parents have invested a lot of time in that myth yeah and for them for you not to achieve some kind of part of that it, it, yeah. it destroys them so these kids are being pushed and pushed and pushed so I'm saying you can do that you can get there but I said there's certain there's it's a game. Mm. Yeah. If, if the game, you have to be aware of the rules. 
Yeah. And, the, and it, when you're when I first started, I didn't know these rules. So I was playing by the rules that I know. So on my street rules, my powers, I know the rules. But when I went to the office, I didn't know the rules. Mm-hmm. So it's a real trial and error. I said, you got to tell the kids that these are the rules. Say, this is rigged. Mm-hmm. But once so once you understand that and you can play the game, you, you can navigate that world. But I guess yeah, if you give up before you started, I don't know. That's the. But human nature is because if you get so many knockbacks. It, it, it discourages you if you lose your confidence. And like I said, you personalise it. You start thinking, oh, yeah. shit at this, man. Yeah. So you think, well, I might as well just do wh- where I feel comfortable. My comfort zone, I'll stay in my comfort zone. Mm. And that's how people become ghetto-wise. And you stay in your area, your field, and you don't expand any further. Why do black kids always do music? Because where you feel comfortable. Yeah. You know? Why are they, why are they becoming PTs? It's where you feel comfortable. I like that, what you just said, though the doors open do what am am i aspiring to be a sociologist of race because that's the door that's open to me i don't know it's like with these things maybe you're attracted to it because no one has told your story and sociology is about telling stories and if you feel like there's this huge gap which there is in talking about the experience of mixed race people Mm. it matters that that gap has not been filled yeah yeah so maybe one day like yeah. <laughs> sociologists of color won't feel the need to talk about race but the fact is now they like they, they do have to, they yeah. have to you know we all should be but the myth of meritocracy uh, guys not real tiso what has annoyed you this week well this is not about race or anything like that. it's more about for me it's about just things like truth and knowledge so what happened was the other day I was at the gym, as I was leaving the gym, this guy comes in, boom. So everyone's talking, what are we talking? Talk about a load of nonsense, but he goes, T, listen. I'm like, boom, okay, he got my attention. What? He said, did you know the earth's flat? And I was like, what? He said, no, 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 seriously, listen. It sounds a bit out there, but listen. <laughs> he said, the earth's flat, they've been lying to you. I'm still speechless now. I, my, my first reaction was to get angry and kind of like barrage him with all these facts. But because since I've been doing my PhD, I've tried to become a bit more reflexive and reflective and think to myself, well, why are people saying this? So I didn't say anything. So he gave me a kind of a, a lecture about why the earth's flat. He left. I didn't see. I saw one of his friends probably the week after. What was his reasoning? Well, I saw my friend and I, he said to me, see, like, the earth's flat. So I said, well, why do you believe Dirt's flat? And this was the most, it still shocks me to this day. And he said to me, well, T, uh, the reason why I think the Earth's flat is because there's more on the internet about it. I was like, what? You think the Earth's flat based on the fact that you've come across more stuff on the internet? I said, well, aren't you searching for that then? He's like, <laughs> yeah. But he goes, there's just, just more written about it. So I'm like, okay. This got me thinking about knowledge, truth, knowledge claims, validity, all those kind of things that falls under the broad philosophical branch of knowledge called epistemology. Yeah. And what does epistemology mean? Like- um, it's concerned with like truth claims and what, how, you, how knowledge is produced and what knowledge is. Yeah. Right. Okay. So what I'm saying at the moment, we have a crisis in epistemology. So this is important for kind of Western philosophy at the moment, Western understanding, because if we truly doubt all forms of truth, where do, where, where do we stand? In the age of social media, where everyone can produce their own truths, or 
in the kind of modern kind of uh, parlance um, alternative facts. And if these alternative facts are then repeated in echo chambers, for example, so uh, sorry, an echo chamber is like a chat room on social media. Everyone's like-minded, everyone's saying yeah, the same everyone's thing. everyone's saying the same thing. So if these alternative facts are about the Earth's flat and you're in the echo, echo chamber of a flat earther and you're seeing the same facts over and over again, it becomes the truth. And how that knowledge is produced is irrelevant almost because the fact that it becomes an emotional attachment to this thing. Mm. So regardless of what, wherever these are, if I say to my friends, I can see peer-reviewed documents, they're like, what's a peer-reviewed document? They don't care. <laughs> it's irrelevant to them. Because yeah. they feel that the mainstream has been lying to them. So they've gone out and sought this alternative fact, regardless of the truth or regardless of the volumes of peer-reviewed literature out there or regardless of what history tells them, they're looking at it from a different perspective, usually from an emotional perspective. Well, I guess, in a way, they have a point in the in many ways, like the mainstream, mainstream media, whatever. Like, everyone is coming from a particular perspective. <laughs> I think that's one of the difficult things about being a sociologist, is you don't... I know, on the one hand, if you look at cultures that aren't your own, you don't want to be like, their version of knowledge is wrong, because that seems very, like, imperialist, and, like, you know, privileging the knowledge of... Um, intellectuals over people who are not intellectual but on the other hand the earth is not flat <laughs> like the earth is not flat like you know it's just but I don't know I guess you can kind of see how right. if you feel like, like for example the financial crash for years and years we're being told oh no like we're doing all this because you know the markets or because you know this is how we're going to become rich or whatever and you know this is going to change the way we live because we're all going to have more money and then the crash comes and the people who bear the brunt of it are the people who didn't make as much money in the first place. You can see why you'd be like, everyone's lying to me. Definitely. When I say there's a, a kind of a crisis in this idea of knowledge is that from the flat earthers to people who believe in the Illuminati, these alternative facts become mind and mind and they become a truth. And these people are, they're not even reflective when they start looking at stuff. They just believe it wholeheartedly. Now, my thing is, I, you can believe what you want. That's not the problem. My problem is that you, you're not taking the time to rationally look at what you're saying to me. So you approach me with a proposition that's unfalsifiable. So I can't argue with you, even if I say to you, you're wrong. What does falsifiable mean? So falsifiable kind of come derives from the kind of like is science. Carl, is it Karl Popper? Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. So you're looking to any argument I should be able to prove or disprove. These ideas become myth and gain currency and because if, you can't prove them wrong because you, you can't prove them wrong so yeah. you sit there and you we can talk about this to a blue in the face it's irrelevant yeah. they're right and when you talk about flat earthers or the financial crash and these all these conspiracy theories mm. they kind of gain a kind of a, a gain of currency and it's very dangerous in an era of foreign bodies meddling in the arts yeah. politics and promoting ideas of untruth yeah where do you where do you start it's because like Russia, I think, realised before anyone else the power of, like, of untruth, but like the power of conspiracy theories. But see, this is this is this is what's scary, right? So what's what I've as I sat there and I thought about it, this is not a new phenomenon, right? So Russia is a good example. So 
they've created so in the 19th century their version of fake news was the protocols of the elders of zion so this was a, mm. a pamphlet produced in the 19th century to justify the russian programs to kick the jews out of russia so this purported to tell the idea of a global jewish conspiracy wait so, well, were, were they like fake bible things or what was it exactly it's, it's a pam- it was a pam- literally a pamphlet they handed out showing right. that the jews were global financiers they were looking to oh, take I over see, the world okay. and this was it's, it's reflected as new so it's like news so, so reflected as newsworthy right so this is how it's put across mm-hmm. as this is going to actually happen so this is not a new phenomenon and this had such an effect this idea of untruth that becomes truth that is still referred to today even on a, like a subconscious level people come up to me and say oh the Jews T like they're crooks mm. and I'm saying well do you know where you're getting this from do you know where you they haven't got a clue if I say to them do you know about the protocols elder design unless you're unless you're studying stuff or you're in the far right you might know but most people repeat it subconsciously they'll tell you other Jews they they all, all they, they run the world so do you know where that comes from so when I tell them about the book they're like well and I said do you know it's a fabrication it's not, it's not the truth well I mean it goes deeper than that yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah but this is what you know that witches I didn't know this apparently you know the like stereotype of like the witch mm. like the hook nose and the pointy hat it's like based on like a Jewish, yeah, anti-Jewish stereotype. So like, yeah. obviously, I know like, that. I knew know that. But the hook nose thing and like the monobrow is like seen as like Jewish characteristics. And then some horrible. parts of medieval Europe, Jewish people were made to wear pointy hats. Yeah, listen, if you, if you go to, um, I posted a video from Borat the other day. And so he's, you know, he's, quite, he's quite funny, but he does, a, he, he does, a, he sang a song called Throw the Jew Down the World. Yes, yeah, I remember. Grabbing by his horns. And <laughs> if you see, so they're almost like monster-like. But you see, this is the thing. When the problem at the internet was the internet scene, when when it was first created as this kind of libertarian ideal, ideas can be shared e- freely and equally, and ha- has no effect on people. Yeah, that's a lie. We know that ideas are going to be manipulated by people. Yeah, or governments. And like I said to Shanto, this is like the internet to me almost feels like a mistake because it's the unintended consequences. It's a, the internet now is a form of social control par excellence like yeah it's if you're on an on individual level and you think you're an influencer on facebook or instagram you can kind of control your narrative to your followers yeah mm-hmm. so you control them through that way if you're a government this is a godsend it, you don't have to go into people's houses anymore it's it's with them 24 hours a day you, people are always looking at their phone so i can beam their messages be it through adverts through this through that it, not just governments companies so everyone's exerting control over your life so this is one of the reasons I thought, like I said, I love gadgets, I love tech, but I had to come off Instagram. Mm. I come off all social media because I'm finding it's, it's infringing on my life. It's putting bad thoughts into my head. Mm. It's making, it's it devaluing your self-worth because you're comparing yourself to people yeah. and your friends. Yeah. You're, you're snooping on people. You're living a voyeuristic lifestyle. Well, and also like all those things, like, yeah, Facebook, Instagram, yeah, so all whatever. That like, you know, they have all that stuff about how it, it gives you like little dopamine. Mm, dopamine like hits. it literally treats you like a lab rat. Like a, yeah. Which it, is really disturbing. But so, so if you look, if people produce knowledge and, and everyone's producing their own form of knowledge and their own truths. So one of my friends, my friend said to me, T, why don't we do, I'll look on YouTube to do it. And I said, do you know, YouTube's not a fact, it's someone's opinion. It's always <laughs> someone's opinion. And like, yeah, so, so opinions can be wrong. Mm-hmm. I said, so, you, you can't be going out there and researching yourself, looking at books. I said, one of the purposes of going to school is to learn to apply your reason to a problem. 
this is the one thing you, you go to school, be it on a kind of superficial level, you, when you're looking at a problem, you apply some kind of reason to it. I said, this is no different. Yeah. But our lives have become so unreflecting that the masses of people say to stuff and it's just like, they just, they'll just blurt it out and say it. Yeah. So be it Katie Hopkins saying something inflammatory about Muslims or, and then people believing it. What we're seeing now, which is quite scary, is it, the truth being weaponized, mm-hmm. versions of the truth being weaponized. And we've, we've literally found out that Russia like influenced the election of Trump and Brexit. Yes, like, I know. Like, I think it's so interesting. So you're like, like, we just if, know, we know that if, if you think it. something's a bad, if you think like if Russia thinks it's a good idea, yeah. then it's definitely a bad idea, guys. <laughs> I don't know if anyone in the government has thought this, but Brexit's a bad idea. Just putting it out there. Yeah. Theresa May, if you're listening. But you see, what Russia why do you think? Why do you think they wanted Brexit? It's like they What I've been thinking about more about them weaponizing the truth is that it's like their punishment to the West. We exclude them from so much. Like I saw today that I, the Olympic Committee are excluding Russia again from the Winter Olympics next I year. I mean, to be fair. Russia does dope everywhere. Yeah, I know, I know, they do. Like, they, they're, they're a very problematic country. But then the Olympics are so problematic as exactly. well. Exactly, but all these little, there's these little institutions that they get that in the West that we monopolise and we exclude mm. them from. It's like, oh, sorry, right, we'll just give you Brexit and Trump. But you see, this whole thing, it attacks the core of what Western modernity is. It attacks the Enlightenment. Yeah. We, we put the truth on a pedestal because it's based on the idea we can arrive at some objective truth. This yeah. has been the core of the Enlightenment movement from the 18th century. If you're attacking the, the very foundations of Western modernity, it, it's problematic for us. That's what they've done. I, I thought this was really interesting though when um, Trump came into the White House and there was all this thing about like alternative facts and fake news, fake news, all this stuff. And I remember reading this article being like, it matters because generally the White House is really trusted to tell the truth mm-hmm. and like give an accurate version of events. I thought that was such an interesting thing to say because obviously that's not the case. Yeah, the White House tells thinking. has always told the truth it wants to tell. Like if you think about anything like the war on drugs, the war mm-hmm. on drugs it is not a true fact that there was a, like, a crisis of drug abuse in America. Like, okay, sure, there might be a lot of drug abuse, but the war on drugs targets groups of people that America, the American state saw as undesirable. And like, that's one of the things raised in the Gary Young program. Like, crack was seen as a black problem, so black people were put in prison. The opiate uh, pan- uh, epidemic, um, there's like a huge problem with addiction to opioids in America at the moment, mm-hmm. partly caused by uh, medical companies and stuff. Uh, that's seen as like, a, oh no, poor white people, let's get them medication, like let's help them get out of their addiction. Like it's not seen as like a war on drugs thing at all. So yeah, to say like governments always use knowledge and information to their own ends it's just that, I, I don't know, I guess the Russia thing... But you see, what's, like I said, the internet's been a godsend. Because, like I said, Russia's not the only government that's been doing it. I think mm. there was an index released the other day, I think 30 other countries... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. ...have been seen to be using the internet and social media to... Influence. To influence or... It's just too easy. Persuade. Like, why wouldn't you, if exactly. you were a government? <laughs> why wouldn't I? I will play to people's fears. Yeah. And most of the time, people buy into it. So, they're so happy... And they indulge it in Islamophobia, what they want to indulge. They don't care about their sovereignty, even though no. that, was a, that was the issue, being eroded by a foreign nation yeah. who's actually infiltrating their, their, their not even their, their nation, their, their personal space, telling them stuff. Mm-hmm. So 
Like I said, it, it's problematic because if we don't understand, if there's no such thing as truth anymore, where does it leave us? Because people are willing to believe anything. If if you can, if you can't trust the BBC, if you can't trust ITV, if you can't trust science journals, because there is some alternative effects or they're seen as fake news. So one of the markers of a democratic state or that we pride ourselves is having a free and independent press. But if we can't trust them, yeah. But I don't. I think what I disagree with you too is like. All of that stuff always has value. Like, science journals have never been objective. Like, there's no such thing as objective knowledge. I guess the point is that if you can't subject anything to some kind of reasonable critique or see some things as more valuable than others, like, okay, everything in that science journal, there is value. Like, some projects are getting funded over others or, like, some universities are getting published or, like, some professors are getting published over others, whatever. Like, there is politics and everything... But you can object. You should be able to, to a certain extent, weigh up. Like, is this knowledge worth more than a guy on YouTube saying the Earth's flat? Yes. But then, yes, the, it is. This, 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 this is the thing that you're, what you're saying is right. Yeah, I like that. It, it's I all like it's that. all drawn into one. It, 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 they're all linked. But then it comes down to the thing. Like I said, you have to be have that kind of critical awareness about yourself. Yeah. And and I'm saying at this at this point. It's in decline because people will see these things now. It's so easy to gain access to watch YouTube. Mm. I d- it's easy for me to do that. I don't have to get up and go mm. to a library or take the time. So one of the best examples is Brexit. What do you know about the European Union? Fuck all. <laughs> Basically, okay. I'll speak to those people. What do you know? Fuck all. They don't know. I said, what do you know? What do you understand about the cap? We don't know what it is. But you're going you're gonna to vote on something that's going to affect everyone, not just yourself, for years to come. But you're going to vote to leave. But you, don't, you understand nothing about the European Union except what you read on YouTube, what you've seen on Twitter, just in your own echo chamber. You put one version of the truth, and this is this this idea of knowledge that you that you've been reading. It's not it's not that it's wrong, but there's also another version out there that you haven't taken the time or you don't want to. Yeah. What they latch onto is versions of the truth. Yeah, that yeah. Are promoted by certain groups of people. Yeah. Who, who I promote this as alternative facts. And someone might have side is fake news or whatever yeah. it will be. And how and how is this how is this knowledge produced? We don't we don't even know. Sometimes people just make it up. Well, we found out with bots, robots. Oh yeah, bots. Yeah, yeah. So oh, that's what that's what controls like Twitter, Twitter, uh, Facebook, like so, governments setting up bots. So you know when you go into websites, our, our governments, yeah, yeah, what? You know when you go to websites, right? Yeah. And sometimes it says at least it ticks a box. Says I am a human. Yeah. yeah, that's to tell you that you're not a bot. So bots can't yeah. do certain things. So, yeah, yeah. for example, on eBay, mm-hmm. now you get into the last minute and yeah. you think I'm going to get this item, and then yeah, in yeah. the last millisecond, someone gets it. Yeah, that's a it's bot. a robot. Yeah. Oh. So that's what they do. People got bots, and they're quite easy to set up. There's a guy called Wardman that said he looked at the internet. He said it was like supposed to be the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. So it, it, we help we hold it up as an ideal, but what we realise is it's just like us. Yeah. It reflects us. Mm. At our worst, sometimes, and at our best. So, at our best, we can do amazing things on it. There's so much knowledge, something to learn. Yeah, but, a good point. but it reflects us. So, mm. it's about trying to introduce social controls into the internet. So, my interest, from my point of view, looking at fears like Durkheim, is to introduce how he thought he could eliminate deviant outcomes in society. So, I'm looking at in the internet, how do you eliminate deviant outcomes in the internet? The way it's behaving. So, for example, on the internet, monopolies are almost acceptable. Mm. But in the real world, we're not. So, for example, Facebook, Google, mm. Amazon control most of the internet. But if that was in the real world, that wouldn't be allowed. Yeah, there'll be people talking good about point, it. Good point. Good point. So yeah. it's about trying to introduce norms that limit that regulate society 
into the internet. And so think about the internet now, you have to think it more socially rather than you would do abstractly yeah. because it reflects us. So it's your Instagram reflects us. So on the, inst- on the internet, you're going to find perverts, rapists, killers, all those things that we find here. But because of the way the internet is, they connect faster, move faster. Yeah. I think the best way to think of it is we have to think of ourselves as social citizens online. Mm-hmm. So the rules of how we interact, how we deal with each other, how we interact with each other online should be no different than when we do it in real life. So dick pics, don't do them because you won't do that in real life. But mm-hmm. at the moment, we're stuck at that libertarian idea of the internet as a in- neutral place where you can exchange yeah. your ideas and do what you want. It's not. It's not. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Tiso, Saskia and Chantel. We'll be back every two weeks, so don't forget to subscribe. 